Hello, friends. Welcome to episode two of the Healing the Divide podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very dear friend and teacher of mine, someone who has been in my life for almost 20 years, David Brown. I'll share a short introduction to welcome David to the podcast, just to give our listeners a little bit of a background. Uh, During the 1980s, following a deep awakening during encounter group therapy, David spent a total of nine months in India with Swami Chinmayananda. Um, he was the founder, Swami Chinmayananda, that is, was the founder of the Chinmaya Mission worldwide. David traveled all over India with Swamiji and received his teachings of a philosophy we're going to be diving deep into today called Vedanta. He had an opportunity to study with him firsthand and subsequent, subsequent excuse me, to that experience, uh, David continued the studies of Vedanta for many, many years with various teachers in the USA. He's led study groups in a particular branch of Vedanta called Advaita, which we'll also be diving into today as we get to explore the question, what is non-duality? Um, for over 20 years, David has been leading these groups um, and really finding a connecting thread of truth amongst different expressions of spirituality. Another topic I want to dive into today. Um, David spent several years living in Toronto studying with Tibetan Buddhist monks. Um, and more recently, he was able to spend time um, with his incredible partner, Lynn, uh, living in Southern California for three years, studying A Course in Miracles with Ken Wapnick. Uh, David, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with me today. I'll also share with our listeners um, that don't know me personally for the last 14 or 15 years now. I've been leading yoga and meditation teacher trainings, and David has been a perennial uh, year after year guest and faculty member of these trainings sharing not just the philosophy as we might find it from a text, but the presence of the teaching itself embodied within him. And that's why I've asked him to join me here today. And I'm excited uh, for the mystery that will unravel itself today. So welcome aboard, David. Thank you for being here, my friend. And I'm excited to dive in. I want to give you an opportunity to say hello and share whatever might be on your heart. Namaste. Thank you so much. Uh, I've totally enjoyed uh, being with you for all these years, and uh, I, I just can't say enough about uh, Kula Yoga, mm. a truly authentic vehicle uh, for the teaching, uh, which I have so greatly benefited from. And I'm looking forward to spending uh, some time with you today. Thank you so much. Um, I am equally looking forward to it. So let's dive in. Um, so, so much to get to. I think the first thing that shows up for me, David, is um, after spending decades immersed in spiritual study, study of ancient texts, and really by default living at this time in this culture, um, if you could zoom out across all the millennia of yoga and really Indian spirituality's vast history and seeing all the different cultures and 
contexts and even conflicts that have been present on our planet across that duration of time. Is there one kernel of truth, one central issue um, or maybe core central concern um, that defines what we might call the human condition that would remain true across all of these contexts of generation and culture? Well, for me, um, the one overriding aspect of this teaching is realization that ultimately human beings are not separated, that we are part of one enormous gigantic family. Um, the, the question is broad, and so yeah, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk a little bit uh, about process, um, but um, <clears throat> the the one overarching awareness, which I, I must attribute not only to Swami Chinmayananda, but to uh, an absolutely incredible brief audience with Ling Rinpoche in McLeod Ganj in India on one of my trips there, uh, is the awareness that love, the pure presence of being, which we normally attribute to love or agape, unconditional love, is that quality that eventually frees us all from the areas and issues of difference and, uh, and uh, I guess, um, disagreement. Uh, ultimately, we see, or I have now seen, that these are all conditions. They're all what we call superimpositions. They're all, as it were, um, conditioned effects of past experiences brought on by our upbringing, our environment, uh, the uh, mores, social mores of the uh, families and the populations in which we live. And teaching the truth, the reality, particularly Advaita Vedanta, as it were, uh, it doesn't cancel it, but what it does is it lifts us above it so that we can be, as it were, living a life of apparent duality, but no longer caught up in the conditioning that that implies. I hope that goes somewhere along the lines that you were hoping for. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I feel like you really actually touched into a lot of the themes that I have written down that I wanted to spend some time with today. So it's a really nice, broad, introductory overview. So I, I definitely want to access some of the spaces a little bit more deeply in love is our true nature, the interdependent nature of existence itself being in relationship to the duality of these various processes expressed um, while being in relationship to the deeper unity that pervades. And I think maybe a good next step for us, for those of us that might not be familiar with non-duality, I think there is perhaps a tendency to think of it in the, the first glance view, which is sort of what you were saying a moment ago of like, we're all connected as in the external plurality. My understanding is that non-duality 
in its essence is really speaking to not just the sort of inextricable quality of the various phenomenological features and their arising and passing, but something that is not beholden to that exact process that is sort of source and substance from which we arise. So more maybe a, an internal uh, deeper seat of connection that is in the unseen. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that in, in your own way and define to you what non-duality is. It's a topic of uh, the teaching of Vedanta, uh, which is, um, as it were, introduced into the student population gradually. It's not something that we come and, and belabor and, and sort of make a, a big issue out of. In other words, uh, the realization of the reality of who and what we are is a gradual process for most people, including myself. Uh, we work our way toward this. It, it's like any, any, uh, any format that is used to describe a process. Uh, in other words, we realize the limitation of the words and the conditioning which the words imply and the ability of the listener to, as it were, interpret those words in the way that the teacher intends or the scriptures intend. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, immeasurable, uh, uh, somewhat subjective, subjective constraints uh, when we try to discuss the nature of reality or the nature of non-duality. But, but to put it simply, uh, my understanding and my expression and experience of it is there's no separation in truth, in reality, in principle, between any of us human beings. All eight and a half billion of us who live on this planet Earth all came into this experience of life the same way we all have parents which we honor and love and uh, and uh, and uh, and learn from we live our lives <clears throat> in ways that are meaningful to us in whatever uh, context that implies and eventually we have to as it were be comfortable with if possible uh, the final overriding factor that we're finite at the level of the body mind and intellect at the level of the physical appearance it's temporary and uh, if we look back over prehistory we can see several billion years of evolution which back all of this up and so in order to as it were set the scene and begin the exploration of what non-duality is we have to take a, a bigger context than just the individual self. The, the individual I, or what we call ego, is nothing more than that pure presence that we currently bring to our experience of what we call life, in, in, uh, in quotes, or the experience of living. And, and when we go through certain of these fundamental life experiences, uh, for example, the, being the witness of the birth of our own child, for example, we realize how incredibly complex life is, how immensely, um, not only uh, complex, but 
interacting and uh, just simply the process of, of living itself, it, how connected we have to be. The air we breathe, the water we drink, uh, the food we eat uh, is, is all recycled in one sense that uh, there's nothing in matter and energy which is added to the universe. It all goes through the process of, uh, in effect, reincarnation at the physical level. So then we have to ask the question, well, given that all of this exists and we have this understanding of the finiteness and almost um, vulnerability of individual life, what is the presence that supports it? What is that underlying connective uh, energy or awareness which enables this incredible presence to begin? When we look at our computer image, we don't see pixels, we don't see computer programs, we don't see energy waves from our internet connection wireless. Uh, wireless. We see just simply the picture we're looking at. Yet behind the scenes, the computer engineer has put it all together. So now what I can really truly understand is that ultimately, not saying that there is a creator as such, but simply that pure present which enables this all to happen is actually what I am. If we subtract everything that is apparent and objective and identifiable to my five sense organs, then I have to say, where did this all come from? Is it permanent? Is it unchanging? Is it absolute? We can't really define that because the teachers and the teachings say it goes beyond the human intellect and beyond words. Uh, Nama Rupa, name and form, is the experience of the human condition. But underlying that is this pure presence which enables a supporting structure for all of this incredible panoply of, uh, of evolution and life to exist. So however each one of us wants to um, internalize that awareness, and this is where um, the teacher really doesn't tell people or should not tell people what to think or what to believe, but to open the doors of perception, to enable the student to be, as it were, comfortable with impossibility and presence and sort of look beyond the narrow confines of our understanding, our, our uh, complex mental conditioning and so forth, and, and see the bigger picture, which is there's only a totality which enables this all to come into appearance. I hope that mm. <laughs> produces this just a little bit. Absolutely. I wanted to pick up on it with <laughs> this quote from... Alan Watts in a, it's a mm -hmm. book I'm reading called The Book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he says, is it, it is essential to understand this point thoroughly that the thing in itself, whether an animal, a vegetable, mineral, is not only unknowable, it does not exist. This is important not only for sanity and peace of mind, but also for the most practical reasons of economics, politics, and technology. Our practical projects have run into confusion again and again through failure to see that individual people, 
nations, animals, insects, and plants do not exist in or by themselves. This is not to say only that things exist in relation to one another, but that what we call things are no more than glimpses of a unified process. Certainly, this process has distinct features which catch our attention, but we must remember that distinction is not separation. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the picture that we look at, for example, the ocean behind me on the wall, uh, is not the real ocean. It's an image. But what it does is it awakes in my mind the concept of ocean. Now, out there somewhere is a real ocean, not an image, and it's not in my mind. So if I have something in my mind that's an image, which is 99.9% .9 of my perception, I have to accept the fact that it's a superimposition. It's not reality. So what uh, Alan Watts is pointing to, and, and I really enjoy his writing, and I have a number of his books and recording, um, he's speaking from his training basically as a Zen Buddhist monk. And, uh, and, and in that case, we're kind of looking at this non-duality up close. It, he's kind of saying that there's nothing out there that is separate from either you or from each other. That, that in effect, uh, cosmology is nothing more than the study of particles in action, in movement. And the beautiful pictures they create and the web in which they are realized is also part of this process of living or life or being here, what we call consciousness. And, and in that sense, um, we truly realize that there is only this one pure presence or substratum, which is not, not the material cause, but the enabling cause of what we see, feel, touch, taste, and uh, experience as human beings. So the underlying awareness that results from all of that not only gives us this pansophic experience that uh, that this truth exists in everything and in all beings and in all areas of our perceived uh, awareness, our, our enlivened imagination, as it were, uh, because we, we look at this construction that we call the world through our own eyes, our own ears, our own awareness, physical awareness, and we create relationships. And it's only with true understanding that we can realize that what blends it all together, the, the existence awareness bliss, Satchitananda, is nothing more than love, presence, and joy. And this joy is, is ultimately what we represent. So though we might be saddened by the appearance of, of disease, uh, illness, deprivation of, of uh, of human conditions like uh, homelessness and so forth and and realize the futility of war and how people's anger simply foments additional forms of separation rather than a joining together and a listening and an awareness that together we can create miracles if we choose to and and it's only the 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 ultimate sorrows that afflict the human condition 
that one can truly say is caused by ignorance of truth, ignorance of who and what we truly are. And once that begins to take hold, then this whole question of projection and condemnation and anger and separation uh, just goes away. We don't have to be persuaded. We don't have to be told by a teacher that it's it's uh, a sin or it's wrong. We suddenly realize that I see the truth as it is. And I also see all of the, as it were, the awareness that, uh, that congeals on the surface of truth. And then we look at that and say, oh, my God, what a mess. And we have to come back down to that inner awareness that this is not permanent. It's not represented by truth. It's not the reality. The truth is what it is. Can we uh, eventually end up destroying this planet through global warming? Absolutely. And unless we're able to, to create the environment in which we work together, which we can see that we can help each other far more effectively by cooperation, uh, then we just have to say, well, it's going to take time and the consequences will be real. So I, I think that's, I kind of went a little bit further perhaps than you wanted, but it's, mm. a, it's a barrier to be involved. <laughs> no, you're right on the the thought train that I'm in. And, and, and again, touched on a lot of things that, that we'll have to take them one at a time because they're so, so dense. But I <laughs> wanted to start with this piece. The consequences are real. And mm -hmm. that what you describe is non-duality as the totality. And so my question to you is, if what is true is ultimately what is total, then why is the appearance of an aspect of it that might arise, abide, and dissolve within the properties of space-time, not also part of that non-dual embrace, or am I misperceiving how you're explaining it? Um, I think the the underlying the underlying awareness that the that the teacher finally wants to um, create in a student is to scrape away the misconceptions. Uh, in other words, to create a beautiful shining object, we have to remove all of the impediments to its ability to shine. And so there's an undoing. Before there's a creating, there has to be an undoing. And this can be abrupt and somewhat painful. In fact, uh, our own life experiences uh, can easily create this abrasive, uh, you know, reveal the truth to me of what I am, uh, as it were, by its own karmic influences. You know, we can lose a loved one. Uh, we can find ourselves in, in a desperate situation and, and suddenly realize that I actually have ultimately no finite control over what happens next. Uh, and that's a showstopper. When, when we're with um, a person who's finally uh, leaving the body, we have an, a, an understanding and an awareness innate uh, that uh, this physical body is a, as it were, uh, just like a, um, a vehicle, you know, like I get in my car 
I press the starter button. I expect the motor to start. We get to a certain point in life realizing that at some moment in time, this physical body is not going to respond to the starter button. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so this is where this, this awareness begins to then take hold. And the next question then is, well, what is truth? What is this reality? How can it be represented? And then we suddenly realize that all of the perceptions that I have are geared back to my own model of what I've created as being my, um, as it were, uh, ability to interact with the world of plurality, the world of change. Um, and, and ultimately, we can say, although we don't, we don't come right out and say, it's all Maya, it's all appearance, in effect, psychologically speaking, if you if you read any of the uh, Jungian analysts, they really go into this question of what is the ego? What does it represent? And uh, and really, the ego, to begin with, we realize is a superimposition. Because if you think about it, you know, we have the body, the mind, and the intellect. And the body appearance says, I'm hungry. And feed me. And the emotional experience says, I want to have a big dish of ice cream along with the Brussels sprouts and the cauliflower. And the intellect says, either go for it or drop the ice cream bit and just stay with something that's better. So you have actually three tiers of the ego's appearance. Okay. And we know that the body can be changed because we're all yoga students. We know that the emotional mind can be changed because we can mature and understand and put two and two together more easily. And we know the intellect can be changed through training and through subjective awareness. So the ego itself is plastic. It's, it's a model of the universe that we've created within our own minds. So the, the question then that finally comes and says, well, if the ego is a transient appearance and it's temporary, what is the reality representative? And if we go back into our yoga textbook, we say, well, okay, there's not only the, the physical, the causal, and the, and the, um, and the, 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 the physical, the mental, and the causal aspects, but this causal aspect contains all of our, our likes and our dislikes, our vastness. And then behind that again is this appearance of Om or the presence, the truth that is. And that's where the intellect shouldn't try to figure out what that Om or appearance is. It comes subjectively. It manifests, as I said, as being the overarching understanding that conflict is a mistake and that loving kindness or compassion in Buddhist terms is a a way of living in this world uh, as a human being. Uh, And that's really what brings the uh, understanding of the Satchitananda from uh, the presence of love the existence or consciousness or awareness which supports that and the joyful presence that it emanates from us when we finally have that realization. Thank you so much. I, I, I wanted to share this piece from um, one of the um, pieces of the Viveka Chidamani um, that I think connects and it says, um, 
this contradiction between them is created by superimposition and mm -hmm. it is not something real. This superimposition in the case of Ishwara, whom we might call spirit, is the Maya, the veil, um, which is the cause of Mahat um, and the rest. So the whole proliferation of life. And in this case, the Jiva, the individual soul, and then the five sheaths or the layers of self. Um, these two are the super, superimpositions of Ishwara and the Jiva respectively. And when these are perfectly eliminated, there is neither Ishwara nor Jiva. A kingdom is the symbol of a king and a shield of the soldier. And when these are taken away, there is neither king nor soldier. Um, the Vedas themselves in the words, now then is the injunction and so on, repudiate the duality imagined in the Brahman. One must needs eliminate those two superimpositions by means of realization supported by the authority of the Vedas. So the idea that what is what has come into being is are you saying that that is is in in, a, in and of itself a superimposition of consciousness or that consciousness itself is modifying what is true to perceive it as something other than what it is it, it depends on the on the view of the teacher uh, we have Sankhyan philosophy, which goes slightly differently from Advaita Vedanta, which is non-dualistic. Uh, but ultimately, those differences are just, uh, I would say, more cosmetic than anything else. Hmm. One really comforting thought is no matter what we think or what we understand or how we behave, we cannot change truth, reality. It is what it is. And we are ultimately like fish swimming in the ocean trying to decide uh, where the parts are that make sense to me in this incarnation so there's always going to be loving compassion and understanding for all forms of human condition uh, by one who's as it were uh, got at least some idea of what this whole process is actually about uh, the Bhagavad Gita actually goes into more detail and is somewhat easier to assimilate this principle. And basically it advocates not only bhakti, which is devotional, karma, which is having a, a lifestyle which is conducive to uh, kindness and, and, uh, and support of all other beings, no matter whether they're human, animal, plant, insect, or whatever, you know, and ultimately non-duality. And that's the final teaching that comes at the end of the 26 chapters where Krishna really hones in on this and persuades um, uh, Arjuna, the, uh, the, uh, the, as it were, um, the prince who's finding himself in, uh, in the difficulty of resolving these questions, uh, gives him that sense of comfort and understanding that this is all part of a process. It's all dependent on where we are, what we understand, and how we want to proceed with this awareness in our day-to-day -day activities. So 
the, the three principles are very, very important. I think that when we understand what devotion truly is, and it's representative of seeing in the image the reality, whether it's a loved one in a photograph, this image of you and I on this screen, or acceptance of it, so we can have a meaningful conversation, even though you're not really here, and to you, I'm not really with you. You know, it's just simply a transmission. Uh, yet at the same time, we are treating it as though I was sitting right in front of you in your own studio. Yeah. So that's part of this whole process of awakening is to see that I can be with this reality as the reality, but still part of the process. So that devotional content, that awareness, that loving kindness is what we call bhakti. Bhakti is the devotion for truth in form. And then we have karma yoga, which means ultimately, not only am I going to uh, experience the result of my actions and also the actions of others, including the country in which I live and the world in which I am part of, uh, that karma yoga begins with me. Like St. Francis Prayer says, let all of this carry on in the world, but let this peace that I feel begin with me. We have to take that individual responsibility to demonstrate this awareness and, and not expect others to say, oh, wow, this is what I've been waiting to learn all this time. That's not going to happen, you know. And finally, the, the philosophical understanding that will take whatever form is appropriate if we, if we do Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, it will be a certain type of understanding. If we go through Viveka uh, Chudamani, the crestule of discrimination, Adi Shankara Acharya, then it takes you right from the very beginning of this awakening process <clears throat> excuse me, and finalizes this whole process in where you kind of get this quote from, which is, yeah, it is a superimposition, we understand that looking at our computer screen, that the images we see are superimpositions, doesn't alter our ability to interact with them. So this whole process of actually becoming awake or aware of truth is really seeing the difference between what I have taken to be duality and what the reality is that supports this awareful process that I still carry in my body, mind and intellect. It's a complicated answer to a complicated <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm staying with it <laughs> because I think it's just, it's worth it. And especially in the name of discernment. And I, I want to make sure that nuance is honored. And in these sorts of spaces, so often in my experience, one of the challenges in the world that we live in is when truth is discussed oftentimes in the cultural zeitgeist that we are in, it is often with at the level of a debating of beliefs and ideas and perspectives. And the problem to me with collapsing spirituality or reducing spirituality into a set of beliefs is it creates division. And that is contradictory to the undivided nature of spirit itself. And 
in an attempt to bring healing, oftentimes conversations between two spiritual teachers will sometimes avoid the discernment of where there might be disagreement for fear of bringing that divisiveness into the space as a result, not ever getting to truth. And the aim of this podcast, not only this particular episode, but in general, is to have really nuanced conversations that honor the deeper recognition of who and what we are in relation to who and what we are experiencing in the being of life. So I I want to take this idea and and bring it into some different contexts. Um, And so it sounds like from what I'm hearing you say in these particular branches of, of, or expressions of yoga, uh, jnana, bhakti, and karma, that there is a, especially in the in the ones you started with in bhakta, a devo, bhakti, a devotion to um, to really the the expression of of truth in form. I think is how you said it. I might be mixing up some of the words, but there was a certain proclivity towards the expressed and yeah. karma that we experience the results of the actions. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes the take that I see a lot in the world of trauma healing um, is almost a pushback against non-dual teachings because they can really create a temptation at a certain level of awareness. And this is where I think the the discernment and the jnana practice is so vital, but they can create the temptation for spiritual bypass. Why does all of this matter if it's not real anyway? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to serve that one up for you and get your take on, I guess I would frame it as one spiritual bypass as a potentiality in, within non-dual teachings. And two, if we were to not embrace it that way, but to really embrace it in its full import, where is the interface or intersection where philosophy meets psychology in an integrated way that supports healing? Uh, really, the um, the teacher, my teachers, who are Advaita Vedanta teachers, uh, speaking from the teaching of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and those other teachings by uh, masters in the past um, have to choose their awareness of the truth and their presentation of that awareness carefully. Uh, they, they basically, everyone who has attempted to explain Advaita Vedanta, including myself, uh, non-duality, has run into a kind of a pushback from uh, people who are not actually ready for that experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. This whole process of awakening, whatever one wants to call it, um, is, is, is really, in ex- with the exception of very few instances, uh, a gradual process. And, and we do need to make reference to these basic underlying concepts with being mindful 
of where people are who are listening. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been in uh, Madras, India. One of my significant experiences with Chinmayananda was this a breakthrough occurring in the middle of his discussion on an Upanishad uh, in the night sky was, was brilliant. And the people around me, there's about 5,000 people in a huge auditorium, and he was speaking about the nature of reality. In words that he used were very poetic uh, and inspirational. They weren't dogmatic. They weren't, it's this or that. They, they didn't talk about uh, what we perceive as being unreal. He simply pointed to and indicated the nature of reality or truth. And I just was very blessed at that moment in time uh, and got it. Um, the effect of that is not necessarily permanent because we have a, a body-mind intellect which is geared to the past. We actually bring the past so much into the present all of the time. In fact, um, if we were able to really go back in time, we realize that that little baby comes into this world totally associated with their body. They want to be fed. They want to be kept warm and dry and loved and held. And then eventually, within a space of uh, several months, that baby develops emotions and starts to say, well, I'm not happy. I'm going to yell my head off until mom comes and picks me up and gives me whatever I need or she thinks I need. And then when they get a bit older than that, the intellect kicks in and says, well, I want a new bike for Christmas. And uh, if my brother gets a new bike, which he did last year, I should get a new bike this year. So this is how the ego actually begins to be created. Depending on how, uh, 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 what should I say, how strong this ego identification is, the more resistant we become to the concept of non-duality. So basically, the principle is we have to understand how the misconception arises, what we are actually doing in our own perception, which is preventing this awakening, and can we, through either grace, well, most teachers would say it's grace, because we don't choose this particularly. In effect, what really happens is we have to let go enough and allow truth to choose us. We have to open to possibility. And as we kind of get a little bit closer to this understanding, then the hold of the ego and the, uh, the resistance to this awakening process gradually dies away. And actually, it really doesn't matter whether there's a difference between partial non-duality or Sankara-type philosophies or total uh, Advaita Vedanta whether we want to say that um, the world of name and form actually is a superimposition and doesn't exist in reality, which some teachers might come out and say, but actually words don't do anything. They create pictures in our mind. And according to how we accept those pictures, so we understand what's being said. Even that's not enough because we have to go beyond just simply the understanding. We have to actually absorb and become the true meaning which is wrapped up in those words and those teachings, whatever that may be. And then ultimately, even that identification disappears. 
And there's just those present moments where the silence and the presence and the totality of all it is becomes the irreducible reality or whatever we want to call it. It doesn't matter what you call it. It really doesn't make any difference. It's really hard to share. But basically, uh, in the traditional teaching of Vedanta, Shravanam, Mananam, and Nididhyasana, those are the three stages. Mananam, to listen to the teacher. Shravana, to, as it were, absorb and begin to really not just understand, but to actually absorb these teachings into one's BMI process, body, mind, intellect, the three levels of ego. And then finally, Nididhyasana is to let go of any identification. Meditation in that sense is not thinking about something, it's being that subject awareness. And that may only last for a few minutes, even though they teachers might say, well, you've got to meditate for at least half an hour. Yeah, but after 15 minutes, I'm thinking about my coffee and my croissant and so on and so forth. We have to have that loving kindness toward ourselves first. And when we gradually accept that what I am and what I express is compassion and love for myself, radiating to all beings, then gradually this whole concept not only becomes clear, but it, it ceases to be uh, a, 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 an identifiable principle. In other words, truth, if truth is what we say it is in the scriptures, it's all embracing. It doesn't choose preferences. It has no preferences. What I like to say to some students is truth or reality does not take prisoners. We don't have to subjugate our awareness to truth. We simply have to let go of identification and attachment and allow truth to come to us. And then this whole question of whether the universe is real or not uh, is an, an interesting intellectual exercise. But if we haven't got it, it doesn't make sense. If we have got it, it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or it's not necessary at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny when I look at my list of questions, the next thing that I had written down was to talk about the idea of enlightenment and that the down the, the down the road, out there, one day outcome of this really idealized ego self, like creating an idea in the name of overcoming the idea so that we can be what we already are, yeah. <laughs> right? Instead of just being present right here. Yeah. in this moment. And it seems to me that um, if there's an illusory nature at play, it is that, that I might find myself creating the idea of the one that is on the spiritual path. And mm -hmm. that if I do enough meditation, if I clear enough conditioning, mm -hmm. then one day I'll get quote unquote there only mm -hmm. to realize that the one who was doing that was never the one that I really was. And maybe there's an aspect that needs needs space-time, needs name and form to move through that gradual process that you described. But yeah. underneath it all is, an, is a, is a re revelatory quality that is not reducible to belief, but is actually expressed as presence of love itself. Yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And um, and really, this whole concept, I'm not too fond of the world, enlight- the word enlightenment. Me neither. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> yeah, it's loaded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, as you quite correctly say, it has identification with time and space. And, and we know enough about quantum physics these days to say that time and space are themselves plastic. They're not absolute. It depends on the one who's witnessing the time and space and their identification with it as to what it is. Like, um, you know, we're realizing now there are far more uh, bodies in the universe than we ever imagined. And even then, the cone of vision that we have precludes our seeing physically almost half of the observable universe. And we're still trying to figure out whether it's flat, round, or like a saddle. So nobody's going to come up with an answer about the physical. And so when we're talking about the spiritual, uh, it's a bit unreasonable to expect any teacher to agree with any other teacher. (laughs) And yet, in a sense, they do. And the reason they do is the way you've expressed it, the appearance of one's individual self Uh, initially, as we've kind of discussed already, appears to be positive and present and absolute. And initially, uh, we have to accept not only is that the truth for us as we perceive it, but is it going to exist for all time? And, And when we kind of have that understanding that it's going to exist for all time, then there are other ways of working with uh, reality or truth, which can be more productive, uh, like, for example, karma, yoga, bhakti, and so forth. Um, but then as we get a little bit further down the road and we feel a little bit more ready to take on something deeper, we begin to realize that what in effect has happened is the ego has acted like a cloak. If, you, if you're fond of uh, Star Trek, which is a, a fun place to be sometimes, you'll realize that the cloaking mechanism uh, of those warbirds was simply a form of subterfuge, of hiding their real intentions from the, um, the good guys. And in effect, the, um, the cloaking capacity of the ego blocks out the appearance of truth until it gets sufficiently transparent that it no longer does. And then we begin to see glimmers of awareness creep in. In effect, uh, this can take a long time because after all, whilst we have a physical body and and all teachers that I'm aware of have physical bodies just like us, um, they also have to choose their meals, live in hopefully clean and quiet surroundings, uh, be available in uh, in uh, locations where they can meet their students and spend meaningful time with them. So that's all part of the process of the body, mind, and intellect. It all works in concert. So ultimately, we travel this journey from total misidentification to a gradual place of awakening, awareness that truth itself manifests subtly and in different ways for different people. And ultimately, we can let go of the conditioning, realizing that what comes up is really the product of the past, and it's not real anymore for me. It's not my actual experience anymore. And the effect of that 
will gradually disappear if I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. I can, as it were, dilute the, the effect of past conditioning by appearing to be totally present. The appearance of presence is nothing more than showing up and being in front of your teacher or your teaching uh, or on the mat, as you so often like to put it, and, and actually present oneself, uh, you know, as as being this authentic capacity to observe and to learn and to become and to be ultimately, uh, not identified with either the ego in quotes, because that exact it really just depends on what's in the conditioned mind as to what we call it. Mm -hmm. Really a non-entity, but that's the only thing is saying, well, we do need the tool set. Uh, it's just that instead of going to the truck outside and bringing in the wrench and the hammer and the, and the big old screwdriver, uh, we're going to choose subtler and subtler tools to enable this awareness to finally take place, to, to allow the cloak to get so thin that it will never drop off, in my opinion anyway, hmm. until the body drops off. But it becomes so thin and so clear, it becomes diaphanous. And I can put it on and take it off whenever I feel like it. It's no longer something that conditions or controls who I am, what I think, and how I feel. All of those things have, as it were, reached a point of, of transparency. And, and, and really, all I can say is that absolute essence of truth is, is simply presented by one who has accepted the truth for their reality as unconditional love, as being present as needed uh, to be aware that all of life is nothing more than an appearance. And, and that appearance can be either blessed or painful. And we want to support and encourage those who are ready to be blessed and we want to support and encourage the survival of those who are having a difficult time of it. That's basically kind of where it comes down to for me. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and your mind and, and how you see that. It's interesting. I, I, I want to go back to the developmental phases that you presenced at the outset there and really see how the traumas and wounds that we experience, not only inner child material, but I think not all inner work is inner child work, but a lot of it is, and as you I think so eloquently expressed that it's the past becoming the present. And the goal of trauma work is to allow the body and brain, the actual somatic aspects of our experience to really embrace that that plasticity um, as possibility to to be able to let it put the past in the past so that when we no longer regard the impression or perception of threat as threat that is the beginning of integration or the coming into the experience of the underlying wholeness and to the degree that there are places within us that hold stories otherwise mm -hmm. that will continue to experience a division within our own self 
And then that division within self will project itself outward mm-hmm. onto the world. And right. the recognition of all of this in my own experience has not been enough that it's also um, in that the, it's almost because that the backdrop of that is the part of me that holds those stories in non-intellectual and non-conceptual domains of body and brain and nervous system and energy that they need different sets of tools, like you were saying. And so one of those processes that feel powerful to me is to not just say this is not true and this is true because it doesn't provide the safety that will impart the trust that will allow a new experience to be received by that part of me. And which is why I so appreciate you in sharing the essential component of this, which is love, that it really is when we feel the unconditional love of our own deepest presence, that the parts that have felt exiled off and unsafe and absent of trust can receive now what they didn't receive then. And it's in that that we get to put down the not only the misperceptions, but have new experiences that allow us to reconfirm that we are indeed safe, that we actually do belong in the tapestry of the whole. And the fear diminishes somewhat organically in in the presence of love, but it doesn't come through subjugation, admonishment, or any sort of evaporative notion of that's false and untrue. So sort of cut it out, which I think perpetuates the experience or misperception, or as you would say, superimposition of of divide. Yeah, you put that beautifully, and I totally agree with everything you said. Um, my own experience is we all speak from our own experience, ultimately, because we can't speak from somebody else's experience. <laughs> In fact, authenticity is to be clear that my experience is what's speaking and not somebody else's. I'm not wishful thinking. Um, and and I, I have to say, I grew up in a, in a British household, which was pretty loveless. And I ended up in boarding school at 11 years old and going through all the issues of, uh, and it was a boarding school in Ireland and I was English and it, was, it wasn't fun. And um, and then I originally emigrated to Canada in '69, and within one year, my wife and my three kids decided they wanted to go back to England. So I was left on my own. That's when I got into uh, work. So I realized that I could either be a miserable human being or I could do something about it. And that's been my philosophy all my life. I can really have to say that. The incentive to learn and to become and, to, and to, if necessary, change has to be kind of an inbuilt driver. Uh, it's where we look at the three gunas in our classic teaching of, uh, of both uh, Shankara and and uh, and Patanjali and in 
in the Yoga Sutras and so on, is, is, is uh, you know, we have uh, the tamas, the rajas, and the sattvic. Those are capabilities of the mind. You may not want to get into that depth of detail here in this interview. No, that's but, fine. Yeah, if you could describe it for people that might not be familiar, I think that would be okay. helpful. The, the way that the uh, classic scriptures of the Far East, mainly India, uh, describe the psychological process that each human being finds himself in is there are three basic states. Now, it is possible for an individual to move from one state to another. It's not necessarily permanent. An example of this would be what makes the teacher a teacher and the student a student. It's the willingness to accept the role that we find ourselves in and not advocate or choose or, or, or yearn after a different role. So we have the sannyasi, the one who comes into this world already pre-programmed, as it were, with understanding, capability, and a willingness to share the truth. And we have householders like us who are basically living the life of uh, identification with cause and effect, and so ultimately, the, the way, as it were, to reach an understanding of reality or truth or present is to realize that we have options. We don't have to really stay stuck in the same situation again and again. But we have three states of mind that can be uh, looked at and to help us make that decision. The um, Hamasic state is the state of basic unawareness, unwillingness to engage, fear of change, uh, fear of, of, uh, of, for example, all of the different ailments that life can bring. And one way out of that, which is the way I came, is you go through such traumatic life situations that you realize that this is not a valid place to be. This is hell on earth, and we do not want to stay there. If we can realize that, then we can move into the rajasic state, which is rajas literally means the ruler or the lord, and literally it means I can actually do something different from what I choose. Now, it has qualities, and each of those qualities uh, represents a, an ability to move into the next stage or an ability to make stuck in it. So if we are rejastic in our understanding, we can be either I'm going to make a success of my life, I'm going to be an engineer, a lawyer, a computer programmer or whatever, I'm going to have a car and a house and all of the other trappings, my kids and my grandkids will be surrounding me for the rest of my life and ultimately, oh, by the way, I will go to church on every Sunday and try and get fixed up that way. So that rejastic stops at that point. But the next step of rejastic is to say, I don't think this is telling me the whole story. And if grace starts to operate in your lives, which it always does, it's no question about that, then the teaching is presented in a form which can be made use of. Um, I went through different, different areas of this. I, I was in encounter groups, had a, a significant breakthrough in those encounter groups and changed my life totally. Eventually married, uh, uh, I actually went to uh, work for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, uh, learned all about, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make something happen in my life that was more meaningful. So I switched from computer science and uh, with a, an accounting firm to go and work for starting up the computer system and doing all of the work at the CNIB in Canada, in Toronto. 
I met a young woman there who'd lost her eyesight at about 22. She went to rehab, learned to program with the University of Manitoba, got a job at the CNIB programming our first computer. Uh, and uh, we just hit it off like a house on fire. Uh, she had zero ability to see, but she had the most incredible mind and the capacity of energy, which I truly admired. So within two or three years, we were married. Uh, after seven or eight, she was a diabetic. That's what caused the blindness. At uh, her age 30, she didn't quite reach her 30th birthday. She had a sudden heart attack caused by the blocking of the arteries, which is one of the unfortunate downsides of childhood onset diabetes. That set me back quite a bit. It took me really, and I had incredible insights. I had dreams, I could write poetry, but it, it kind of made me look at where I am in my relationship to what I call life. And I, and I was with this person one minute and disappeared the next. And that gave me a sense of reality or the fragility of life as reality in my sense at that time, being Rajasic only, um, that was just intolerable. So uh, after about 18 months of trying to go from one support group to another, uh, I, in the end, uh, came to uh, yoga, which is why I've always felt so strongly that Kuli Yoga is a wonderful place for people to learn, to heal, and to as it were, experience their potential. And uh, my yoga teacher, um, Margaret Louverink, I will never forget her. Uh, she was a little older than I. She was a great yoga teacher. Uh, I was able to talk to her a little bit. And for some unspoken reason, she sensed what I needed. And she told me that in a few weeks' time, small group from Toronto will be going to uh, listen to Swami Chinmayananda in Chicago, and would I like to go along? And I said, well, who's Swami Chinmayananda? She handed me a little book. It was the 19 talks on the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Dayananda. Uh, this is a, a, a synopsis, a, a brief synthesis of the primary teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, wow, 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 as I read each section. And I said, yes, I, I will go with you. And that was the turning point for me. That actually created the, uh, as it were, the uh, the magic moment where I could say that things changed. Did it? Was it something I chose? Was it? No. This is where this whole principle, when the awareness finally starts to take hold, then we can actually move beyond uh, what we perceive to be a place. So this is where the rajas, the aspect of I want to accomplish begins to shift into the last and final stage of mind awareness, the sattva, which is the desire to learn, the willingness to accept that there is more to this understanding than I could possibly have imagined. I'm ready. I, I do not know the answers for myself. Please show me, teach me, you know, take me from where I thought I was to a place where I can be who I am. And Chinmayananda gave us uh, meditation in the 7 a.m. He gave us Upanishad in the morning class, Bhagavad Gita in the afternoon class, satsang in the evening for 10 days, total immersion, unbelievable. And it changed my life. 
Well, that was 45 years ago, mm. and I can change my life ever since. And uh, one of the mm. things he said to us was, because we were all enthusiastic members of our little group in Toronto, I'm going to be teaching, this is what he said, the uh, Vivekachud Armini, Adi Shankara's masterpiece to all of these students in uh, North India. We have a new ashram, and it's in North India, close to the Himalayas. And uh, we're going to also have some religious ceremonies there. Uh, Hanuman, which is the uh, a beautiful spiritual uh, rendering of uh, truth in action, uh, is going to have an Abhisheka, which is a an opening, a blessing, a pouring on of milk and honey and uh, Ganges water. And uh, you'll be part of that. And this will be the first session that I will be teaching in this uh, location. Who would like to come? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so here was me, Dave, absolutely no idea of any Indian concepts at all, no idea of Vedanta, no idea of nothing about anything that he was explaining, getting on a plane, flying to um, New Delhi, getting on a bus, uh, and going rumbling through these these really rocky roads all over to this new ashram and staying there for two months. And I just absolutely loved it. In fact, can I show you a picture? Please, yeah. Thank you. I, I, I show this occasionally. This is... This is ah, this is, I love it. This is what it looked like all that time ago. <laughs> about uh, beautiful 42 and uh and uh and the whole thing kind of took off i had a, a leave of absence from the accounting group where i was working because uh, i i moved to um uh I, I when my wife died i left the cnib it was just too much for me in that two-year period went back into accounting and uh, worked as a data processing manager and I took a two-year leave of absence from the uh, two-month leave of absence. And after that two-month uh, retreat was over, um, I said to Swami Chinmayananda, I need another month. Can I please go to Gangotri, which is Uttakashi, which is on the Ganges, where a little ashram existed that was the uh, original residence of Chinmayananda's teacher, Swami Tapapan. So... He said, yes. And he says, why do you want to go? And I said, I need to sit down quietly to meditate and to reread this teaching which you gave us. And, and it's this, this, you know, this book is quite sizable because of the commentary that Chinmayananda has in it. And, uh, and so uh, I did that. Um, I wrote back to my employer. I said, I'm sorry, but two months wasn't enough. I need another one month. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and stayed there until probably uh, middle of December. Uh, so after after about three months, I eventually went back, said goodbye to Swami Chinmayananda, uh, hoped to see him in Toronto when he came next, and uh, went back to um, Canada. Uh, my job no longer existed. They decided. Wow. That, uh, that extra one month was a showstopper from them, so they hired somebody else. And I certainly didn't blame them <laughs> because it opened another door. I could work as a, um, as a what they call a contract employee 
and I went to a, a consulting agency and I worked for them for a while and then uh, uh, started to take like three or four month assignments working for banks and trust companies and so on. And the idea was I never wanted a permanent job again. <laughs> After nine months went by, I hopped on a plane, went back to India for another three months. <laughs> and, uh, and I did that two more times. And then found out that he was coming to the United States frequently. And uh, I could go to different ashrams and listen to him teach uh, and so forth, which I, I did and uh, still do. Uh, so it's nothing. And the other thing is this sattvic sense of awareness is almost irreversible. We still sort of slide backwards and forwards because we need to do things. We need to organize things in our lives. We have bank accounts. We have to pay, you know, whatever we need to do to keep our, our home and, and lifestyle in one place. Um, so it's all going to be present. Uh, so we need a little bit of rajas and we need a whole lot of sattva. And occasionally when we can't sleep at night, a bit of tamas works too. You know, mm -hmm. so, but we don't use drugs, we don't smoke, we don't use anything that, that affects the physical body in a less meaningful way. So that was quite a mouthful I kind of returned to you. I hope that was okay. <laughs> yeah, I so appreciate the story and the personal piece of, of, of your journey, David. Um, what an incredible incredible roller coaster of a journey of humanness. None of it was planned. Mm -hmm. Coming, it's, I'm, and I'm so grateful, you know, for those choices that you made and the grace that was granted. Um, you have personally touched my life in such a meaningful way, and I am so grateful. And the ripple effect of that outward is is it's hard to put into words. It's it's part of why I wanted to do this with you today i i want i want to document this uh you i this relationship these teachings these insights your journey um will have you know this video will will live <laughs> uh, as you like to say as it were up on the youtube forever and ever so you know may your great 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 grandchildren um still be able to to see you and 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 these you know, incredible insights because of the choices and journey that you've been on and the impact that it has made in this community. You know, people will be listening to this from all over the world, but here where we are in the United States and South Florida, and I'm very excited as we embark upon our first ever 300-hour teacher training, which is for people that are already steeped in their teaching to go deeper, that we will be studying this particular text with commentary by Swami Chinmayananda, your teacher, and having you continue his lineage to our community. It, I have goosebumps just thinking about it. And I'm, I'm so, so grateful from my heart for you. And and so thank you, yes, for all of that. And to go in, back into the current of the Dharma, it's interesting. I, I, at one level, can see how an excess of tamas can create a sense of like everything is happening to me and we get stuck in the inertia. And then excess of rajas can be that like mentality of everything is coming from me. And as mm -hmm. we enter into sattva, it's that, everything is happening through me and 
yet we are always in the dance of all of them. And I, I appreciate that piece at the end that doesn't sort of just take the negative um, context or connotation on each of them because there is a time for rest and grounding that Thomas gives to the foods that we eat, to the naps that we take. But can that be too much? Of course. And there can be a sense of like Rajas is the medicine for Thomas that when we're in that stuck space, that movement and that energy can be so helpful to mobilize. And there can even be an excess of sattva where I see a lot where people are sort of floating up in the luminous and it, and they could use a little more of the other things. And so there is such a play of, I think, always being present to these qualities or properties of our nature. Um, so that said, it really, uh, it, I think it speaks to, if we, to go back to where we started the conversation, um, you know, as we zoom out and see all these properties at play and where this sort of center of gravity of consciousness is in, in through the lens of these gunas, you can see that there's a lot of sort of just going through the, the motions. There's like a big Thomas component on our planet. Um, Raja seems to really have the throne at the moment. And, um, and then it's, I don't know if you see this or agree with this, again, just speaking from my own experience, but a lot of the people that especially are at those initial stages of moving into Satwa Guna or moving into this more illumined understanding and experience of self have a resistance towards, in particular, what I want to say is power. And that power has often been associated with the ego. So it gets tossed out with it and by default leaves a power vacuum that is filled by the power hungry rather than the truly powerful, who, who I would say are the, the, those who are in those illumined spaces. So to the degree that you may or may not have the same analysis of the situation, what might you offer to those who have done the deep inner work or doing the deep inner work have been at it for a while? You know, they, we can see the, at the Tomasic level, the indoctrination and inculcation of societal conditioning on the masses. We can see the manipulation of power, the oppression um, and the injustice that happens um, in those that are willing to engage, but from an ego-based identification, um, how for those that have enough rajas to act and um, enough tamas to ground and enough sattva to see, how would you speak to their participation in the material reality in ways consequential? and particularly within the context that I was speaking to. So if somebody sees the conflicts that are happening around the world, the, crisis, the crises that are occurring around the world, how to become participatory while still maintaining uh, a sense of truth to their, their process and practice of peace.
Uh, I think it depends a lot on the skill set of the individual. Some people are truly imbued with a capacity to work with others and to make changes in groups. I, I recognize that in you also. And, uh, and the willingness to, as it were, create truth, as it were, in, in bite-sized portions hmm. so that it doesn't frighten people from, from doing what they need to do. Um, the, the process of making change in the world, uh, first of all, has to take place from within oneself. When one is ready, then whatever karmic consequences are available to us, whatever skill sets we may have, whatever calling we feel drawn to, then we will find the energy and the courage to do that. And there are some people who can do it. And, and it's, it's kind of, we each find our own place in it as well. I mean, I've not been called to be a government employee, uh, but I have been called to share what I've learned. Uh, do I choose how to do that? Absolutely not. It just comes, and I just choose whatever I need to choose. I can be walking along the street and greet a person who's obviously an immigrant with loving kindness and awareness. I can ignore the issues of a person, uh, for example, a, a pharmacist, uh, in our local um, uh, pharmacy store is um, is a black American. Do I see that? No. I see it simply as a recognition, but I, I, I'm with him in exactly the same way as though there were no differences between us whatsoever, because there aren't. And, and to see these changes as it were, automatically presented in one's own psyche uh, is uh, incredible. And where we can share that, then we should do so. So uh, this whole question of, um, of what can we do uh, is really left to the individual's response to opportunity. And we should not leave a stone unturned to make a difference. We're not, as it were, uh, saying because... There, there's the principle of non-duality and superimposition that we can ignore what's going on in the world. That's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. No, absolutely not. We do what we can. We recycle. We don't contribute to the mess that others may have to clean up. Uh, we are responsible citizens, and we work in ways that we feel led to and given the opportunity to be present with. Um, mm. Is there an ultimate purpose? Well, this is because we have a physical body. This is because we have karmic uh, uh, responsibility. This is the parabda karma issue. And once we can understand that this parabda karma will continue to function until the body drops and then it disappears. Um, even the teacher chooses to be a teacher. Chinmayananda was called out of his uh, uh, um, amazing uh, uh, experience with his teacher in the Himalayas, who was quite reclusive, who did not tour the world like Chinmananda did. He, Swami Tapavan, lived uh, in a in a very quiet environment with uh, probably thirty or forty students with him at the most. Others, um, Vivekananda, Chinmayananda, 
uh, and other great teachers have toured the world and created a body of knowledge which is available if we feel led to uh, identify with it. So my take on it is ultimately it may not be enough. It may not enable this beautiful planet to survive what we're currently doing to it in one way or another. However, we look back on it, the planet itself also has a, a, a sort of a karmic content. And the, every karmic content ultimately is looking at preservation, is not looking at demise. The whole point of karma is that it's, it's not going to be uh, burn the boats, we're not going back type of thing. There, there'll always be this presence which acts to rebalance an out-of-balance situation in whatever uh, way that needs to be done. Uh, do we really know? Well, there's a lot of people today who are willing to uh, stand up and be counted, whether it's uh, to argue against the injustices uh, of our own internal situation here in the United States, uh, particularly regarding immigrants or, or, or uh, issues with race. Um, it, people are standing up against war and uh, violence in all of its forms as being unnecessary, ignorant, and conducive to continuance. Historians say, well, it's been happening for thousands of years. You know, mm -hmm. you back over human history and see it all over again. So this is a repetitive process. The only thing that's really changed that may affect the ultimate outcome is global warming. So whatever we can do with our vote, our voice, our feet, our actions to help prevent that would be highly appropriate. Uh, and those are all, all apparent. Doesn't matter whether one is the uh, an avatar. Krishna came to bring an understanding to, of truth to Arjuna. Uh, Ram created a constant uh, epiphany, as it were, of how to deal with Ravana, the image of evil in the old days of the Puranas. So there's all sorts of ways we can uh, mm -hmm. But we never stop uh, until the body drops, uh, seeking to prevent and, and uh, work against ignorance in whatever form is open to us. <clears throat> thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's it's interesting the way the pendulum swings. We got into this a little bit in the last episode uh, when I was interviewing Arian Wiggins, and we talked about sort of utilizing the tools that we find in uh, helpful in creating connection within coupleship, particularly within domains of difficulty, upset, and conflict and applying them within contexts of geopolitical spaces and where they might be applicable and where they might not be. And I find it a fascinating question that I, um, I think I'll tend to bring up again and again, to just to hear the different answers and, and see, and, and it's interesting to me. I think there's, you know, to go from a place where we were so identified with our identity of our manifest identity, our ethnicity, our gender, our race, our beliefs, etc., and the 
suffering that ensues from that, the separation and the, the difference making it generates. Um, and I'm not saying differences in positive impact, but the sense of, I see you as different. Um, I see you as separate. I see you as other and, and how that ex- generates and promotes lack and separation and conflict to move into this, I think where the non-dual offers the colorblindness, the recognition of oneness. And yet I think there's a penduluming back to center here where it's, I see you as an extension of reflection and in connection to me, but I also see your lived experience as demonstrably different than mine. And I don't claim to understand what you have moved through. And, and I think to a large degree that colors the way that we experience this journey of life. And we were speaking about in this episode, the value of curious, deep, and empathic listening. And maybe that's a place that we could start from. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. I'm curious. I'd like to hear and when we can feel each other's presence and we can feel each other's hearts, maybe that can awaken, a, a, and this is maybe this is my sort of hopeless optimism, romantic, positive outlook, Enneagram type, but the, I, I, I still maybe cling a little to the hope that there will be, despite all that I see, contrary to this right now in front of my, I, what I hope to be are very open eyes, that there will be an ushering in of inspired leadership where it's not a me versus you, but I'm here to listen. I'm here to understand. And maybe that's naivete. Maybe that's, you know, like I said, romanticism, but it gives me a sense of purpose to work towards that and and my voice feels strong my energy feels mobilized and i feel inspired to participate in such a way um, and to raise my children to participate in such a way that stands for something and and to bring this higher consciousness into action you know it's you know we talk about in the the gita that that yoga is skill in action and a, a lot of our talk today has had that sort of thematic energy to it. So I want to put you in two different contexts and hear what you'll say. Uh, So a little (laughs) thought experiment, if you'll entertain uh, the notion. You are invited to give the keynote to a college graduation. What do you share with the students that are getting ready to leave campus and enter into um, this next chapter of their lives? Well, I think the most important thing is to never hold back with whatever skill set one finds oneself uh, capable of. The second thing is to develop an awareness of what the effect of that skill set is going to have on your family, your environment, your, your, uh, the, and the population as a whole. Um, <clears throat> you know, we see skill sets developing now in artificial intelligence. <clears throat> that can be misused just the same way as we see 
so many uh, 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 posts on Facebook, for example, which are either untrue or designed to mislead or simply there to promote, um, you know, a, a like and therefore some form of remuneration. So one has to have values. One has to develop a sense of what's appropriate for me personally, because that's who's going to be affected by a lack of values, a lack of understanding, ignorance running amok, um, and uh, will cause the downfall of many people uh, because they get burned and hurt uh, and, and sometimes even, um, uh, you know, lose their sense of willingness to uh, continue living because of uh, situations that um, uh, they find themselves in. Uh, we saw that on the, you know, the collapse of financial empires uh, where the uh, owners of those empires or people who got involved in scams involving those empires lost everything and they lost the will to live. So this whole process is really just simply um, being aware and awake to possibility and learning the difference between what is appropriate for each one of us to grow with and for the benefit of others as well, uh, as opposed to mindless uh, behaviors that will cause pain and suffering in this world. So that would be kind of a, a I wouldn't Maybe. try and indoctrinate them with morals, but I would yeah. try to express that concept in ways that they would be interested in pursuing because the lack of morals will lead to mishaps, downfall, disappointment, sorrow, agony, and pain, ultimately. And I love that you really preface the entire piece with the need for discernment and bold action that to in accordance with one's own you know nature or skill set uh, going back again to the bhagavad gita it says our faith conforms to our nature one's faith conforms to one's nature and i think that's important to see that there is a sense of being in alignment with one's own truth there are particular philosophies and texts and scholars that i've been reading recently that are strongly opposed to that because of the promotion of individual expressivism and try to contort the external reality to match the internal needs of the individual and that they hold that that's sort of the downfall of society. So maybe we'll save that for a further discussion. I, I might take a different um, okay. approach on that. Um, but within that, there's a sense of the co-opting of moral authority or the perception of moral authority. So this is really an interesting piece before I, I put us in, in the thought experiment number two um, to really look at, um, I was reading a quote yesterday from Saul Alinsky who wrote Rules for Radicals, Deeply Informed, um, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama's policies and approach to community organizing. He kind of, he was the guy that created community organizing. Hillary did her senior thesis on him. Um, interestingly, during Bill's term as president, she asked that her thesis was sealed. Um, but it, one of the things that he said, and I'm, I'm not going to get this verbatim, but it's essentially the idea of 
accuse the opposition of what you're doing to confuse the voters um, so that you can essentially continue to manipulate the narratives. And, and this to me is kind of at the heart of what's happening. So when I will have conversations that are political in nature with people that might land in a different perspective, there seems to be a shared sense of I'm operating from what I perceive as moral clarity. And that is really beautiful to me, actually. It, it creates an opportunity to recontextualize the disagreement beyond the perception of the story to say, well, where you're sourcing your perspective from is what you believe to be morally just. And this is the information you're taking in that supports or refutes that analysis. Um, and then that gives space for me to say, I see it the same way, or I hold it differently because I see this, this, and this, and then we can expand the amount of information that we're consuming. And maybe that is a needle mover. Maybe it's not. There's a lot of, I think, identity and that, that infiltrates politics. I share that to say that sometimes what we call discernment, if it's not deep enough, we may think that we're in the practice of discernment only to find that we're being manipulated. Um, and I believe what you shared earlier, those algorithmic silos on social media can definitely keep the echo chambers reverberating. Um, and so we have to get outside of them. And that really creates a need for consumption of independent media um, and trying to find that in this day and age is it, it, it takes some rajas. It takes some effort to get out of the tamas of turning on the TV and thinking that you're going to get discernment instead of propaganda. Um, I think it, it also requires a sense of the sattva of understanding that when someone presents a completely different perspective than your belief or orientation to the world, that we can stand not just again in belief, but in the presence of truth and see them as brother, see them as sister, um, and, and find a connection that sits beneath what maybe would feel fractured otherwise. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's, it can be a challenge to come into it and um, have a clear compass at a time when there's so much manipulation present. The, the one comment I would make is part of the skill that we gain from studying these teachings that you and I share <clears throat> is the ability to listen to other people, uh, to dialogue with other people without projecting one's internal view onto the conversation. In other words, having the ability to, uh, to see another's point of view and to understand it and to perhaps compromise one's own standpoint to enable that other person some room to move. You know, if we were able to listen to uh, the, 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 the painful situation that some people find themselves in, we might be more adept at finding solutions that would work rather than trying to build uh, literally walls of, uh, of, of uh, obscuration, which are designed to prevent 
what would be a, a natural uh, desire for people to find themselves safe, uh, warm, uh, educated, and, uh, and, and willing to participate in society. You know, mm. that, that's, uh, that's where we, yoga has a lot to offer in that respect, I know. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I don't know if you were speaking about immigration policy. Um, oh, or... But there's a whole bunch of other things that, uh, that are going on at the moment, which are, uh, which are significant, I suppose one could say. So, so let me put you in a, <laughs> another context. Um, I'm tempted because of what you shared to move to immigration, um, yeah. but, and no pun intended, but I think I want to go to what's happening in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So in this thought experiment, you are invited to mediate a peace resolution between Israel and Palestine. What's your approach? It would be to listen to the concerns of both sides, to find out what are the uh, situations that have caused this confrontation to take place. Uh, some of them are fairly obvious. Uh, even today, we can look at the uh, news and comments about uh, cause and effect. But, uh, when a population, regardless of uh, their circumstances or heritage or race or economic situation, when they're subjugated to the will of another group of uh, of uh, of the population, there's bound to be issues. And so the only way out of that is to even the balance. It's to see where merit exists and where uh, uh, violent response uh, creates this difference, this huge gap in the ability to uh, even see each other, let alone meet and speak and find appropriate solutions to an issue. Um, so I, I can say that basically, uh, yes, any form of violence is going to be ultimately a deterrent for any form of rapprochement, any form of agreement, any form of mutual understanding. So that has to be number one. That has to stop. And then we go forward from that neutral standpoint where the fighting stops, that the the issues then can be put on the table and hammered out and what was needed to be done perhaps 50 years ago could be put in place today. Perhaps not all at once, but step by step by step. Because what's the alternative? Not only destruction of one side, but the possible destruction of the other. Because we could see other nations in the Middle East start to take a more serious uh, role in this whole process. We could light the fire for a third world war if we're not very careful because we have uh, two major protagonists uh, sitting on the sidelines chomping at the bit to try and make this change happen. They want to see, uh, you know, the Western nations fail because they think that's the way for them to succeed. We have to show them, no, the way to succeed is for all peoples to work together for mutually appropriate goals and objectives. Uh, is that sanity likely to exist? I, I would need a very big crystal ball to say yes. Yeah, one one can can only hope. It's it. I I've sat a lot with this particular conflict and over many years, and 
it's interesting. You know, there's the thought that uh, I've heard people say, if is if if both sides put down their guns, which is what I'm hearing you say, the the Israeli side, that, and I don't want to say I don't I don't like. <laughs> this sort of like homogenous putting everybody into one group because there's a lot of variation within a country, but right. the sense that there would then, if, 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 if Israel put down their weapons, there would be no more Israel. If Palestine put down their weapons, um, there would be peace. And I, I, I don't, I have a hard time believing that and, and reconciling it with what I see um, in front of me and the larger context within which October 7th has arisen. And if we keep contextualizing out wider and wider, and all of a sudden within a minute, we're back 2000 years, I, I land simultaneously in two sort of polar polarizing places. One of them says, guys, like it, at what point is it like, two human, two sets of, of um, ethnicities uh, that both have a claim to um, connection with a particular bit of land that feels like home and has been home to them and their families for many generations. Um, I and, 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 and then you and I can have any sort of disagreement. We're not going to kill each other over it. We're going to find a way to work through it and without that. Um, so sort of like this, like who has the right to it um, thing, which kind of feels then takes me to the very deeply microscopic and personal, which is it's already too late for some people. Like, like if I lost my child yesterday or this morning, it, it's not, we'll get through it and we'll get there. Like stories written, it's, it, it for that human and for my family, like damage done. And, and the grief is, it feels almost insurmountable. Um, and so it's just so heartbreaking. Like it's so deeply heartbreaking to see that humans do that to one another because of how they collapse identity into a particular ethnicity or feel that they're chosen by God or that the land is theirs to possess or all of these ideas when, if we, the, the last piece I'll share is the other argument that I also hear is if from either side of this is if I were to, if we were to put down our weapons, like we can't do that. It's in Hamas's charter to destroy Israel or, um, or Hamas will say, um, Israel is oppressing the Palestinian people that the other side will somehow harm us. So almost every time you reduce it down to what's your core argument, it's they'll kill us. So if both people said, no, we're not the ones and you really believe that, then have a ceasefire, give it a period of time at each phase when certain um, benchmarks and thresholds have been met, then there's an extension of, of safety there and then perhaps new policy can come in when these benchmarks are met um, but at the end of the day to be honest if there's any division i don't really see it between israel or israelis and palestinians um, at all i see 
the only place I could put a demarcation, I think, and still hold true to my sort of value of the fundamental non-duality is those that are aligned with violence and those who are not. And in that case, I would put the two quote unquote sides into one side. And then I would put the people that are the victims of that on either side into the other group. And then I would see it all through a lens of the frequency of consciousness within which the individuals are operating. And I would use that as the delineating consideration and then seek to shift power to the mm-hmm. higher frequencies of consciousness, regardless of which geographical or ethnic side they happen to be on, and let them do the negotiating. Um, I agree with what you just closed your remarks with. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The thing is, there's no such thing as a group. Right. Uh, a group is a is actually a position right there, staring us in the face. Mm-hmm. Every individual makes up the group, every individual has their own likes and dislikes and their own uh, tamasic, satwic and uh, rajasic temperaments. <laughs> so we can only speak to those who are willing. To those who are not willing, uh, they have to either be bought off or, or, as you kind of put it, divided into another group. But realistically, that might be difficult to do. So I think that the the most likely um, effect would be to develop a carrot and stick approach where if you don't agree as a group, in theory, to this uh, uh, set of uh, of regulations and demarcations, uh, then we go back to war. Which would you prefer? You know, that that kind of uh, willingness to, to listen to alternative possibilities and choose what comes out to be the best possibility given the circumstances, for a a general collective of understanding. Uh, We have gone through this before. This is not insurmountable. Uh, We have survived two major world wars in Europe. Um, The the Second World War, uh, I was uh, actually alive in, and I remember the bombers going ahead and the whistle of the bombs coming down and the house next door being blown to smithereens. Mm. I grew up. Uh, you know, five or six listening to people tell me how terrible Germans were and how they, you know, ransacked the country and what fascism was. And it took a while for me to come to my own sense of understanding. It wasn't permanent. And now I have no angst, no issues, uh, no uh, problems with uh, either any nation in the United States, in uh, in Europe. Um, an interesting uh analogy is during the First World War, which is a a terrible trench warfare dragged on for years uh, across Normandy and France, uh, there was one Christmas Eve where the German soldiers in the trenches celebrated their own form of Christmas and they sang the most beautiful rendition of O Holy Night in German. Mm. And it wasn't very long. before the British troops on their side of the trenches, only a hundred yards away, joined and started to sing the same tune in English. And it wasn't long after that before men started to climb out of the trenches, cross no man's land and exchange gifts and backslaps and, and hugs with the troops on the other side. 
human nature has a capacity to seek the best solution to a conflagration. How did it end? The officers who were responsible for the conduct of war started shooting. And the men had to run for their lives back to the trenches from which they came. They deliberately ended it. It might have been just a pocket. It might have been a few miles. I, I really don't remember enough of the details. But it was, in effect, a miracle brought on by the human love and understanding that's resident in all human hearts. And uh, there probably were British soldiers who hated the idea and stayed in their trench, and probably German soldiers that stayed in their trench, that they didn't pick up a weapon and shoot. It was the officers and the ones responsible for the conduct of the war that did that. So the leadership is required whether it's uh, the leadership of the uh, Ikud, the uh, leading party in Israel, or whether it's uh, Hezbollah, or whether it's uh, any of the groups that are resident in, uh, in the uh, Palestinian areas, to agree in principle. And their responsibility then is to get enough support for that principle to be put into effect, not back away from it. So I, I agree with you that, and the other thing is, we have to be aware that each individual will have their own mindset. And so we have to, we have to comfort and help and, and, and perhaps heal those who, who have lost devastatingly uh, uh, whole members of their family, entire family groups in this uh, horrible situation. Um, so it won't be easy, definitely not, um, but it has been done before. Don't forget that the United States drop two atomic weapons on two cities, Nagasaki and, uh, and uh, uh, what was the other city called? Hiroshima. Yes, Hiroshima. Uh, wiping out millions of innocent families, all in the name of war. Uh, now we, have, we are in friendship situation with Japan. It took years to get there, but it did happen. Um, if we could go back, would we ever do that again? Lord, I hope not. There must have been a better way. Uh, but it wasn't found at the time. The expedient uh, was there. The power was there. And uh, one could possibly look at it and say that was a misuse of power. Uh, there could have been better ways of, uh, of ending the conflict with Japan than wiping out all those people. So genocide has happened on this planet. Warfare has happened on this planet. Healing has happened on this planet. It's not impossible to go ahead with a healing process, even in Gaza and Israel, in my understanding. Yeah, I, 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 I see that, and I, I, <laughs> I, yeah, fingers crossed. And and here's what I see in it: when I when I hear that, I still hear there is the connotation of group, like so, like the Americans could could mend those hurts with the Japanese, but we're sort of like collectivizing this amorphous idea of Americans and Japanese. And at the end of the day, what really happened is there is the journey that's that those human beings on an individual level happened to be on was taken from them and without, and you know, there's no right for that. And they, and the, I don't know how, when that happens beyond the, even the atrocity that I personally can't seem to get past, but the, um, 
beyond that, the idea that um, it doesn't foment more hatred and contempt and divisiveness from the people there that, that we can't like bomb our way to peace. And, yeah. and I do understand we also can't politely ask people to put their weapons down and, and all hug each other as well as beautiful as, as that is because it shows the power inherent within humanity. It, I, I really think you're onto something when we talk about leadership mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. and that when love and recognition of truth yeah. and recognition of truth as love and love mm-hmm. is truth. When that exists in leadership, yeah. then we will begin to have a trickle down effect where those aren't the basis of where we're making decisions um, and, and how those powers that be allow that or prevent, try, attempt to prevent that from happening. I know that we could keep going because there's like the we're in an election season and there's maybe some opportunity for that. Maybe there's not. Um, I know there's more issues going on in the world, but um, I want to stay true to my commitment to the the time that we have dedicated to this conversation. And so, given that there are just a few minutes, I would like to invite you um, to share given all the different areas that we have discussed and all that you have seen in your journey, you've shared so much, David, from being a little boy and hearing the the whistle of the bomb dropping and the next door neighbor's house blowing, it could easily been your home, um, to the journey with your first wife and, um, and, and losing her in the physical sense and, the turning towards your teacher, Swami Chinmayananda, and all the different journeys. Um, and I wanted to ask you to share in the context of the opening stanzas of A Course in Miracles and how that informs your perspective on what matters most. Uh, I'd have to get the book to do that. Sufficiently aware. Yeah. Well, to the degree that mine is accurate, and you can probably correct me once I jostle. Um, um, nothing um, real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Therein thank lies the peace of God. Therein lies. Thank, thank you for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing is, when we talk about the difference between real and unreal, we're actually talking about that which is permanent and that which is impermanent. Um, the, the, the time exists on an impermanent basis because our experience shows us that time and our experience of time is flexible. Also that our lives are finite. That many of the physical issues that we're talking about existing in the world today not only exist in far more places than Ukraine and uh, and Israel, Palestine, but also across large swaths of the African continent and issues that still exist in North Korea and so on. So we're not we're not dealing with just one issue of of uh, human awakening and consciousness. 
we can't actually, we don't have a big enough fire hose to deal with all of the issues that are going on. So all we can do is to focus on, I think, not just ourselves, but our own country. And, and here we kind of see incredible divisiveness and rhetoric and issues that are fomenting difference and anger and, uh, and disconnected responses to world problems. And I think we have to deal with that first. It's like the collective I. I am, I work with truth and reality and presence on the individual level. If, if it were humanely possible, I say, yes, let's hire a fairy godmother who wave a magic wand and solve all of these political and ideological issues that we're dealing with in the United States. But we're not setting a good example. In fact, we are feeding the fire in the eyes of some people who would like the, to do the United States harm. So I think we need to personally focus on the issues at home so that we have a better chance of solving the issues in other people's countries. Uh, and we're seeing that play out in the issue uh, with um, uh, the uh, issue, uh, the problems with Israel. No, no form of violence is justifiable. So we begin by saying that when we see fake news appearing on the media, we can immediately disown it, fire off, uh, you know, uh, some response which says, no, this isn't true or accurate, uh, disconnect from following that particular news feed, uh, it, whatever little we can, uh, you know, to provide a saner and more balanced platform of needs and desires and intentions, but especially in our own country. I deeply hope that this conversation is a contribution to that possibility in some way. Um, just taking the privacy of these thoughts, bringing them out into shared experience and broadcasting them out into people's lives that can hear them, contemplate them, consider them, let them pass through their own filters and lenses. So if you are listening and you've been moved, um, into meaning in, in some way by this podcast today, please um, share it with somebody or share a conversation with somebody in a meaningful way. Um, be bold enough to share your heart. Agreement is not required um, in order for us to, to start moving forward. There's a deeper space of connection that pervades differences at the level of intellect. And if non-duality up close offers us anything. It's the presence of being in relation to being um, that we can move forward uh, together in a way that actively works for a more peaceful experience for this planet, for all of us whom are sharing it. So thank you all for listening today. Thank you, David, for your time, your energy, your presence, the work that you've done within yourself and that you share with the world. I love you and I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate and love you too and look forward to seeing you soon and thank you for doing this. Hmm. Namaste. Namaste, my friend. Thank you. <laughs>